And please turn to Mark 14. Our text for the morning is Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. And while you're turning, welcome to those of you who are visiting us. How many of you are from out of town this morning? Yeah, large number of you. Okay, welcome to Canyon Bible Church of Prescott. <laughs> Usually the courthouse square is most people's favorite place to be in Prescott, but a little secret, ours is this place right here. <laughs> Uh, we're thankful that you're here this morning enjoying uh, the weekend here, and we're thankful that you're here in this church this morning to hear the word of the Lord. We, we come every Sunday as an eager people, don't we? We come eager to hear what the Lord has for us. He speaks. He's alive. <clears throat> His word is alive, <clears throat> and so we come eager. We're going verse by verse through the gospel of Mark for those of you visiting us, and so we come to the 14th chapter, and again, our text, Mark 14, 1 through 11. Please follow along as I read. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good to them. But you will not always have me. She's done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, whenever, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. I've entitled this message, Beauty and the Betrayers. I'll give you a heads up on what we're going to do the rest of our gathering time together. We're going to hear from God's Word, and then we're going to take these little symbols, those of us who are believers, take these little symbols of His death, of His body and His blood, and we're going to eat the bread, drink the cup, and remember His salvation. In many ways, that's what this group has been doing, is about to do. You see there in verse 1 that they're about to partake of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, just like, in a sense, we are. They were going to partake of the Passover. We were going to partake, we're going to partake of the meal that the Lord took from the Passover, the Lord's Supper, which signified his death. Not the death of a lamb back in Egypt thousands of years before, but his own death that he was shortly going to experience. They were going to experience his, uh, a memory of, his, of the Lamb's death. We're going to experience a memory of His death. They have been listening to Jesus' words, hearing Jesus' words. We are continuing to listen to His words. So in many ways, we are kind of similar to where they are here in chapter 14. They're about to feast on bread. We're about to feast on bread. They have been listening to His words. We are listening to His words. Now, you'll note that in this passage, you have different responses to Jesus, Right? You have different responses to his teaching. 
Some in this group hear his teaching, have heard his teaching, and they want him gone entirely. It says in verse 1 that they wanted to arrest him by stealth and then to kill him. They want him gone. Why do people kill other people? Because they think when they're gone, they will be better off. When those people are gone, they themselves will be better off for some strange, crazy reason. You can see it all the way back from Cain and Abel to here, the chief priests and the scribes, they want Jesus gone. Some people, when they hear Jesus' words, they want him gone. Some people, when they hear Jesus' words, when they come to know him, what do they want to do? They want to serve him. They want to love him. They want to adore him. We'll see that as well. And then we'll be introduced to a disciple of his that doesn't just want him gone but he wants him gone, and he's going to go about having him gone in a very deceptive way. So, there's the group before us in Mark chapter 14. Some want him gone entirely, some want to serve him, some are going to deceive him, and they want him gone, but publicly they look like one of his followers. I'd venture to say there are some of all three groups in this room this morning. Some of you may want Jesus out of your life. You don't want to hear his word. You don't like being here this morning. You don't like being in any church. You want him gone. I'm asking you, please listen to what the living word says. Some of you simply want to serve him. <laughs> I want to serve him better. I want to learn how to serve him. I want to adore him. I want to, I want to be with him. You just want to serve him. Some of you look like you want to serve him. Look like you want to be here. Look like you want to be married. Look like you want to do Christian things, but inwardly you want him gone. You want your own way. Mark is writing for this purpose, for these groups to see what's true in them, to see where this book unfolds. The Holy Spirit's getting our attention in Mark 14. We're in a new series. We're in a new section of Mark. We just went through a section where he's controversial. He, he's criticizing the chief priests, he's criticizing the scribes, he's criticizing the Sadducees, he's criticizing the Pharisees, he's criticizing the whole leadership of Jerusalem and says, this whole place is coming down in judgment and I'm coming back again. He's gone through that. There's this season of controversy. In chapter 15, we're going to start to see that he is actually betrayed and he's arrested. Now he's in custody. But in between Mark 13 and Mark 15, we come to this chapter. And what's Mark doing in this chapter? Mark is showing us a, a group of people, some people who are devoted and some people who defect. In this passage, who do you see that's devoted? This woman that pours the ointment on Jesus. She's devoted to Jesus. You also see some defectors, don't you? You see the chief priests and the scribes. They should be listening to the living God, but they are opposed to him. They are trying to remove him, remove themselves from him, remove him from, them, from themselves. They're, they're defecting in a sense. You also see Judas being the chief defector, the one who's been with him, but who's going to leave. In the next section, next week, Lord willing, we'll get to the next section where you see Jesus announce that he's going to be betrayed by one of the disciples, and you kind of think, how is one of these men going to defect against him, betray him, leave him? And then you have Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper, the fact that he dies for people who sin against him. So you've got the defectors and you've got the one who's devoted in Jesus. And then you see Jesus 
circle again and talk about specifically Peter who's going to deny him. So this chapter is full of defection and devotion. Defection and devotion. When things are getting hot as they are, who is going to leave him and who's going to stay with him? And in the next passage, who's going to leave him and who is he going to commit himself to? So there's a lot to learn in this coming chapter. In this passage, we're going to see three responses to the controversial Jesus. Three responses to the controversial Jesus. Here's the first response. It's from powerful people. Powerful people will oppose him entirely. Jesus taught this. He taught this before he died. We've seen this throughout human history. You can point to people today, can't you, that are powerful in the world that oppose him entirely. We see a picture of this in verses 1 and 2. Powerful people will oppose him entirely. First, in the first verse, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. So they are discussing with one another two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover, a particular night, a particular day when lambs are slaughtered to remember what happened thousands of years ago, God saving his people from those evil Gentile Egyptians. That's what they remember. That's what they were commemorating. This is two days beforehand, and the, the power players in Jerusalem are figuring out a plan, plotting a plan of which to arrest Jesus and kill him by stealth. The Passover coincided with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Those of you who know your Old Testament, know the early parts of Exodus, understand that 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 night they were to leave, they were supposed to pack quickly, make bread without leaven. They didn't have time to wait for it to rise. They just had to eat that flat bread and get on and go, get out of Egypt. So this is what they would commemorate. They would come to Jerusalem, commemorate this every year, and this plan, this plot that's happening among these chief priests and scribes is happening two days before the Passover, which is two days before the Feast of Unleavened Bread starts, which would last seven days, and that's where we find ourselves. These chief priests and scribes, we're familiar with them, aren't we? And Mark, we know who they are. We know this group of priests that has run Jerusalem. We know these scribes, the lawyers, the experts in the Old Testament law. We know them. They, in many ways, have been displaced by the teaching of Jesus. These people are following Jesus and not so much focusing on what the chief priests and scribes say. Jesus is also threatening their income as he criticizes their false leadership. So these people are threatened by Jesus. They're powerful in Jerusalem, and they're going after him, and they don't just want him arrested. Notice they want him arrested by stealth so that they can kill him. This is what they want. But they know that he's popular, don't they? Verse 2, for they said, not during the feast, not during these next seven days, lest there be an uproar from the people. Remember, faithful Jews from all over the place are here in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is swelling with people, kind of like Prescott on Fourth of July weekend, all right? It's a popular place to be. The place is buzzing, and they don't want to address or arrest Jesus in front of all these people because a lot of people are following him. They're listening to him. They like him. So they think we've got to do this some other way, by stealth, so that we can kill him. I'll remind you that what the Jews were celebrating at this point was God saving them from pagan rulers. Fast forward to the time of Jesus, this weekend, right here, this week, this time. What's happening here? The Jews are in Jerusalem, many of them, and they know that this is supposed to be their land, but who controls their land? Gentiles, the Romans, 
So the Romans know that this is a day where the people of Israel, people of Jerusalem, celebrate God redeeming them from those powerful Gentiles. They know that this is part of Israel's history. It happened back then in Egypt. So Rome knows this is a place where this is a time when things can get out of hand with the Jews. That's why Pilate would come to Jerusalem every year during this time. Rome was on guard, making sure these Jews don't get out of control. Now, the Jewish leaders of the day, they were allowed to do certain things. They were largely allowed to worship as they desired. So they wanted to keep some sort of good relationship with Rome. They hated Rome, but they could live with this. What would be worse is if Rome cracked down like they would a few decades later. So the Jewish leaders are, they don't like Rome, but they're afraid of things getting unsettled. And Jesus has been causing some disturbances. That's why the Jewish leaders say, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Because if there's an uproar from the people, Rome's going to get upset, and then there's war. Then war's going to trample on the few things that they have left. So, this powerful group of people, this Jewish leadership here in this time, this powerful group of people are opposed to Jesus entirely. He's a threat to them. But it happens today, doesn't it? Powerful people all around the world threatened by the teaching of Jesus, threatened by the proclamation of Jesus. Today, all over the world in all different nations, all different areas, you find people wanting Jesus and his teaching out. Government leaders on school boards, in cities, in counties, in states, in nations, in world organizations want the teaching of Jesus out. This is nothing new. This happened when Jesus was alive. It happened after Jesus died, rose again, ascended to heaven. They've always wanted the teaching of God out. In fact, Psalm 2 tells us even before the Son of God came to earth, even before that, people want the ways of God out. Because when the ways of God are proclaimed, it says that you and I are in error. And no one today or any day likes to be told that they're wrong or their desires are wrong or that they're living wrongly. Governmental leaders want Jesus out. Shapers of culture want Jesus out. Professing Christians in some circles want Jesus out. You know how? We like these teachings of Jesus. We just don't talk about these. That's wanting to silence Jesus. That's making up a Jesus that doesn't exist. That's making an idol. These people here want Jesus out entirely. Just like Cain wanted Abel gone, these people want Jesus gone. Today, it happens as well. And remember who's Mar- who Mark is writing to. Mark is writing to people that are alive after these events. He's writing to Christians in the Roman Empire who are still under the threat of persecution later on in the first century. He's writing to them, and if they were reading this, if you were a Christian, uh, let's say somewhere in the Roman Empire, outside of the Palestinian area, and you know that Jesus was, was arrested, put through a mock trial, executed, rose again, is coming back, and he's ascended to heaven, and you have confidence in him. If you know all that, and and these government leaders are trying to silence you and what you stand for, you know the end of the story. You'd read this and think, see, the government's always gone after God. They've always gone after him. And there would be a a certain peace about you as you were suffering, 
Because listen, Romans or Mark 14 isn't the end of Mark. Jesus dies, and then he rises again. And readers of Mark's gospel, the first readers, would have known we know the end of the story. They're trying, but they can't keep him dead. They're trying. So they, they would know this. We know this. But it is interesting to see this is what people do. They want Jesus gone entirely. Even powerful people want him gone entirely. And let me say this to us as a church. Our work is not to make Jesus acceptable to the society. Please stop doing that. If you make that your aim, you'll think that we're losing. We're not losing. Our aim is not to make Jesus acceptable to the society. There's a temptation there that we'll kind of soften some of Jesus' edges. We won't say what he said over here in this passage. We'll say what we said here and maybe they'll like him. You can't do that. Jesus will never be acceptable to the larger society that hates him. That's not our work. Our work is to bring the message of his death and resurrection and why he died and why he rose again and the fact that he brings salvation to people and he offers it to people all over the globe. That's our work. Not that governments would like us, but that people would be saved by him as we proclaim his death and resurrection. Isn't it interesting that they finally got their way? They arrested him and they killed him. And in that, he saved people. So let them do what they will. We'll keep preaching the gospel. That's our work. That's our work. They want him gone entirely, but he's still alive. Reminds us of Psalm 2, doesn't it? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together. Oh no. You imagine this large mahogany table with the rulers of the world sitting around it, making declarations and determining things, official things about keeping Jesus out of the world or his teaching out. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. We know that to be the son of God. And they're saying this, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You know why people want God gone? You know why people want Jesus dead, his teaching gone? Because they don't like the restraints that his teaching puts on them. Let's get rid of those shackles. Let's get rid of those chains. Let's get rid of those cords. Psalm 2 verse 4 says this, He who sits in the heavens laughs. It's rather funny that they think they can do this. The Lord holds them in derision. They'll pay for this and they won't win is the message of Psalm 2 verse 4 and it's the message of the end of the Gospel of Mark. They will pay for this and they won't win. He lives. He's alive. He rules. He reigns. But powerful people and others will oppose him entirely. But praise the Lord, there's another response to Jesus. One that's, in, one that's encouraging to our hearts. Verses 3 to 9, we see this. His people will serve him beautifully. So there's a response. Powerful people will want him gone entirely, but then his people will serve him beautifully. This is a different response altogether to Jesus. And we see it in a particular woman, Mary. Her name's not given in this passage. It is in John, but we see it in her. Verse 3, and while he was at Bethany, two miles away from Jerusalem, where he would stay that week during that holy week, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, 
probably someone healed by Jesus. Simon, who had leprosy that's been healed by Jesus. Almost everyone thinks that that's probably what happened here. He's at the house of Simon the leper, and he was reclining at table. So he's, he's eating a meal that's more of a formal meal, reclining at table. He's not just sitting on the cushions, just having a casual dinner. He's at a table where there are people around. Again, we know from the other Gospels that Lazarus, this might have been in celebration of Lazarus has been raised from the dead, that Mary and Martha would be there. There's a lot going on here, but he's reclining at table. He's at the home of Simon the leper, and a woman came with an alabaster flask, one of these brownish yellow flasks, see-through glass type of uh, colors. There's this flask carrying this ointment, this, this perfume really, if you will, from India, this plant from India that grows, it's called spike nard, or here referred to as nard, has spikes on it, but it but brought forth this great aroma, this great perfume, very costly, very expensive. This woman brings this flask of ointment or pure nard, it's very costly, the text says, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, this, as we'll see later, is very expensive, about a year's salary worth of perfume, this is probably, most people think, a family heirloom, probably something that's been passed down, and she spends it all at one meal. She uses it all on someone else, not her, but someone else at this meal. When I was uh, in my late 20s, so I don't know, just a couple years ago, when I was in my late 20s, uh, I found this cologne that I really liked. And, and as all things I seem to really like, they stopped making them. So they stopped making this cologne. So I still have the bottle. It's about, I don't know, two-thirds of the way gone. And I don't want to use it. I, I'll use it for special occasions, date nights, things like that. But I don't want to use it. I don't want it to be gone. And it was only probably $60 back then. This lady has some perfume that is worth a year's salary. And it says that she broke the flask. Just cracked the top open. Done. Can't be saved anymore. Cracked the top of him and poured it all over the head of Jesus. Verse 4. There were some who said to themselves at this dinner, some who said to themselves indignantly, they're angry as they talk, some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? We know tragically who the some are. They're the disciples of Jesus Specifically, John tells us that Judas was the one speaking for the disciples. It says here they were saying to themselves. It means there was a group of them saying the same thing together. How could she do that? Why is this being done? And Judas evidently was the key figure we learn in the Gospel of John. The disciples are criticizing her. The disciples throughout Mark have questioned some of the people coming to Jesus. And here they do it again. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, they're angry about it, why was this ointment wasted like that? I'm reminded of the words in Jude 16 here, where it talks about the ungodly. Now, these are his disciples, people he's loved, people he commits himself to. Judas, we know, is going to betray him. The others are going to remain with him after a time of defection. But this is that group. These are his followers. But Jude 16 sounds a lot like these guys right here in this at this dinner, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. It's what the disciples sound like right now. Primarily, 
Judas. Verse 5, they continue, for this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, 300 days wages. You take out Sabbaths, you take out certain holidays and festivals, you've got about a year's wages there. This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Oh, they so pious. How dare she do that? Look at how many people could be fed with all of this money. And they scolded her. How many of you like being scolded? I don't even like saying the word. It's kind of a harsh word. They scolded her. Picture Mary. We know about Mary, right? Mary trusts in Jesus. Mary's brother has been raised from the dead. Mary sits at the feet of Jesus and takes in his word. Mary loves Jesus. Mary has this expensive thing. She's giving it all to Jesus, and the response is scolding. She gets scolded by his disciples. You wish at this point it said the chief priest scolded her, the scribes scolded her, but no, these are his followers that scold her. She's being scolded because she's done the wrong thing with what she's been given. I love this. Verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Jesus, the defender. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. He didn't just say, leave her alone. That's mean. Maybe she's a little misguided, but don't say that publicly. No, no, no. Leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing. Leave her alone. She's right. You're wrong. Leave her alone. If you've been scolded by religious people for doing something that's not a sin, hear the defending Jesus. Jesus defends his own. Jesus loves his own. He protects his own. Jesus says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing. And here I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 10. It's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. These men are commending themselves, looking good like they care for the poor. We know, again, from other gospel writers, that Judas was saying this because he kept the money and he would take some for himself. We know there's hypocrisy going on here. But Jesus commends her and rebukes them. Verse 7, he continues to them. He says, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. He'll, he'll teach, won't he, in the rest of Scripture. His, the Spirit will teach that we do good to the poor. He's not saying don't care for the poor here. He's not saying that. He's saying you always have the poor with you. You can always minister to Jesus by ministering to the poor. You can always do that. But here, he's only got a limited time here on earth, and she is doing all that she can for me. You'll not always have me. Verse 8, she has done what she could. She's done what she could. Mary was not, as a woman, not a mover and shaker in Jerusalem politics. She wouldn't have been a mover and a shaker in that religious world of the day. But what did she have? Costly perfume. I can give this to him. I want to give this to him. I want to pour this on him. I love him. And he commends her for that. She's done all she could. All she could. 
Mary didn't have to be someone else in her Christian life. She didn't have to look like another person, another woman, another. She didn't have to do that. She just did all she could, and it was all for Him. Friend, do all you can for Jesus. You're not the person sitting next to you. Your family isn't the family, the other family in your Bible study who's doing other things for Jesus. You can do what you can. So do what you can all for Jesus. He commends that. She's done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. But when bodies die, they smell. And so people would go in the days after and anoint the bodies. It's a way of showing dignity to the body. They know the soul's not there. They know that, but they're showing dignity and they're anointing these bodies, putting perfume on these bodies, and Jesus is saying, that's what she's doing for me. Jesus assumes she knows that he's going to die. This is very interesting to me because all through Mark, he's saying that he's going to die, and the disciples are so puzzled by it. Evidently, this lady knows he's going to die, and she's pouring her perfume on his body, preparing him for burial. Verse 9, and truly I say to you, to these men, Judas in particular, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she's done will be told in memory of her. Today is one of the fulfillments of Jesus' words right there. The gospel is being proclaimed in a continent far away from where they are at the time, 2,000 years later from where they are, and here we're learning of this woman's sacrificial love to Jesus. Jesus was right. When the gospel is proclaimed, people will come to know who this woman is. Christ's people serve him beautifully. They do what they're able. I know I've mentioned to you uh, Frances Havergale. I, I love the story of her writing the song, Take My Life. We sing that song often here, Take My Life and Let It Be Holy, Consecrated Lord to Thee. Frances, you know the story, I believe. Uh, she was going to a house with 10 people that lived in it, and she said that some didn't know the Lord and some knew him but weren't happy. <laughs> Problem. And so she said, Lord, use me, give me this house. She spent five days there, and she says in her words, at the end of that stay, everybody had received a blessing. Evidently, her stay did something in that home. And she wrote the so this song, Take My Life, the last night of her stay there. In it, she asked the Lord to take her life, her hands, her voice, her silver, her gold, her will, her love, and use it all for him. The song ends, I love this lyric, take myself, my, my whole self, everything, take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Forever only all for thee. One of my favorite lines in all hymnody. <laughs> Sounds a lot like Mary. Everything for him. Whatever I can do for him. What, you, what I haven't told you is five years after Francis wrote this song, uh, and she was a great soloist. She evidently received uh, quite a bit of money for her singing abilities. She was a great soloist. Five years after this, she actually had all of this jewelry, 50 pieces of really expensive jewelry, and she gave it all away to a Christian mission. Gave it all away. She said this to a friend in a letter. She said, nearly 50 articles are being packed up. I don't think I ever packed a box with such pleasure. Just giving it 
all for him. The Lord evidently answered her prayer in that song. It is encouraging to me, and I know I say this a lot to you, but I don't want to stop saying it. It's encouraging for me to be one of your pastors that sees you serving each other so faithfully. So many of you giving so much time, resources, spiritual gifts. You give so much to one another. And it's, I just want to pause here and say thank you for living out that example. That's who the Lord makes us, right? He saves us and He wants us to be a means of helping others. It's very encouraging to see. So, brothers and sisters, keep going, okay? <laughs> keep going. It's also important to see this, though, isn't it? There are followers of Jesus that grumble about other followers of Jesus' worship. Brothers and sisters, let's stop grumbling at the worship of others. How dare we criticize those whom God commends? Think about it. Criticizing those whom God commends. We can look at Judas and go, what a jerk. And then go home and evaluate all the Christians that you came into contact with who were worshiping, but who worshiped in ways that were different than you did. You ever had a preference about what we sing? That's okay. Keep it to yourself. <laughs> Have you ever had the preference to the point of criticizing those who lead us in singing? Who are we to criticize whom the Lord commends? The Lord receives worship, and we look down on it. I preach to myself. Who are we to criticize whom the Lord commends? This happens. Jesus takes note of worship, and he approves of it. Jesus sees the heart, and he approves of it. So friends, I say this to myself, I say this to you, let's stop criticizing one another for things that are not sin. Let's stop criticizing one another for the worship someone gives that might be, worship, that might be different than how we might give it. Please, let's stop that. There's enough rebuking for us to do because of sin in the church. That we must do in the right way. But this we must not do. I can't get past it, though, Jesus the defender saying, leave her alone. Jesus is always the best defender. Jesus always defends his own. You can see this all throughout Scripture, God defending his people, God defending his people. Are his people perfect? No. Does he defend them? Yes, he does. Defends them to the end. There's a third type of response to the controversial Jesus. It's this, deceptive people will reject him secretly. Deceptive people will reject him secretly. We know we can open up the newspaper today, any newspaper around the country, around the world, and we can find examples of trying to silence God, silence Jesus. We can find it from editors of newspapers. We can find it from talking heads on television. We can find it from politicians. We can find it from sports leagues. We, we can find people trying to silence God. And they're out and out in their silencing. But here in Judas, we see someone who's deceptively rejecting Jesus, who's doing so in a secret manner. And that happens as well. Verse 10, 
Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, Mark's showing us what group he's in, the group that should be closest to him, who's one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. I want to tip you off to something that's going to come later in Mark. Jesus isn't the, or sorry, Judas isn't the only failure as a disciple. They all are. They leave him in his time of need. Humanly speaking, when he needs his friends the most, they leave. Judas isn't the only one. But here he's mentioned, his betrayal was a final betrayal. He completely left Jesus. Judas would go away from this meal, find the chief priests in order to betray him, Jesus, to them. Now, from reading the scriptures, it's clear that Judas, maybe the final straw for Judas, was his public rebuke that he received from Jesus. How many of you like to be rebuked? Any hands here? No. How many of you like to be rebuked publicly? No, thank you. Judas, at this meal, was rebuked publicly by Jesus. Just after Judas said something that he probably thought would be commended. Why not give this all to the poor? Oh, Judas, you're so mindful of the needs of others. Thank you, Judas. That's right. What's she doing? Judas got the opposite. Leave her alone. Judas was rebuked publicly by Jesus, and then we find him going away to find the chief priests to, depra- to betray Jesus to them. Friends, we don't like to be rebuked, and sometimes we will attack the rebuker. It's hard to see this, especially knowing the forgiveness Jesus offers. Again, all the disciples left Jesus, but many of them went back to him, received restoration. Judas didn't go back to him. Judas would later feel conviction over his sin and end his own life. Conviction of sin doesn't bring salvation. Conviction of sin to the point where you go to Jesus, the one you've sinned against and the one who will forgive you. Conviction of sin leading to going to Jesus for restoration, that leads to salvation. Judas stops short of going back to Jesus. But here, Judas is rebuked, and he goes to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. Verse 11, and when they heard it, they were glad. I mean, you could just see the the smiles come on this group's face. We got him. One of his own is going to turn him in. Earlier, earlier in Jesus' public ministry, they put out an announcement that people were to turn Jesus over to them. They put out this announcement to the people of Jerusalem. Well, now they got one of his own who's going to betray him. They're, they're rejoicing. They're glad, and they promised to give him money. They would. They give him 30 pieces of silver. We know that. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. From then on, Judas thought, okay, where are we going to be next? Where, where are we going to go that I can turn him over? That's what Judas started to think. There is a type of person that looks like an ally of Jesus or a follower of Jesus, but is really an enemy of Jesus and an enemy of his kingdom. This is a reality. This is hard to take. The psalmist said this, it's not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, 
We used to take sweet counsel together. Listen to this. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. We went to the festivals together to worship God at his house in his holy temple. We did that side by side singing to him. And now you are betraying me. You can hear Psalm 55 read in the words of Jesus. There are people who look like followers of Christ that have hidden lives and in so, in so having, they are casting a dark spot. They will cast a dark blemish on Christ and His kingdom. Just in the last couple of weeks, some of you have heard of a pastor, well-known pastor, pastor of a Major League Baseball player who is a devout Christian. This player and his wife were having marital problems. The pastor from the same seminary that I went to counseled this couple and ended up committing adultery with the wife. Now it's all public. How does that look for the cause of Christ? While he was preaching and leading, secretly betraying Christ. Didn't just happen 2,000 years ago, friends. It happens today. It pains me to think that there might be people listening to this now or later online who are actively involved in lying and deception, who are actively communicating with someone who's not their spouse, who are actively doing wrong things in business, actively doing so, and sitting here and singing songs today. I'll remind you that John 6 said a couple years before this event right here, John 6 said that Jesus knew who was going to betray him. Jesus knows. He doesn't just find out when everyone else finds out. He knows. Judas wanted money. He was rebuked publicly. And then he went after the one who rebuked him. Fake believers who are caught up in sin are called out. Then they go after the ones who rebuke them. There's a reason people who look like Christians for so long and then sin against spouses and the church and whoever else, there's a reason they go online and start trashing Christians because they feel the conviction, but they want to get back at those who bring the rebuke. This is nothing new. It's an age-old problem. And I want to say this to you. You might be convicted by what this passage is bringing out, you might be pretty uncomfortable right now, but I want to bring you a word of comfort, okay? If you will repent and believe and confess sin, Jesus will forgive. He will forgive. His people will forgive. He is a forgiving God by nature. That's who He is. Jesus came to demonstrate what God is like. He, God in the flesh, came to show us God's salvation. So I want you to take note of Judas's fate. Judas did what he did. Later on, he felt bad for it. He betrayed his Lord. He, he felt bad for it. He betrayed his friend. He felt bad, and then he went and ended his life. He didn't receive salvation. Again, feeling bad about your sin doesn't bring salvation. Feeling bad about your sin just means you're starting to think about your sin rightly. So feel bad about your sin, but understand Judas' fate. He felt bad about his sin, and he didn't go to the one who would forgive him. And there was one, there is one who forgives. So friend, if you're hearing me right now and you're hiding things, go to the one who willingly forgives. Go to him and find forgiveness. So I want you to understand Judas' fate. I don't want you to go down that road, but I also want you to understand 
a man named Peter's fate. Next week, we'll look at the fact that Peter blew it also. Peter denied Jesus. If you will, he defected from Jesus for a time. Later on, after Jesus dies and rises again, Jesus is on a shore, and the disciples are fishing, and they see someone, and who's that? Looks like Jesus. Peter. At this point, who would have been overwhelmed by guilt, dives into the water and swims to Jesus. What does Jesus do? Restores Peter to himself. That's Jesus. So if you look like Judas in some regard today, I want you to think about Peter, who also looked like Judas to some regard. And I'm asking you, I'm begging you to go to Jesus who came to forgive sinners. That's why he came. He's completely forgiving. These are the responses to Jesus. Some want him gone. Some do all they can to get him out. Some live to worship him, and they love him. And some want him gone just secretly. They look like one of his followers, but they're actually not. I want to conclude with this, though. I told you earlier when we looked at Mary that Jesus is a defender, right? I want you to see that Jesus is also a commender. Jesus didn't just defend this woman. He commended what she did. I think sometimes when we do an act of service for the Lord, we just just feel like we're always supposed to feel bad about it hey, thank you for for making that meal for us. That was such an encouragement. Whoa, I'm not perfect. Okay, we know that. We got that. Hey, thank you for leading that Bible study. I know you put in a lot of work, and that was really helpful in how you helped us to understand what was being said. Well, I'm not the perfect Bible teacher. We, We know that. Hey, brother, I think you're doing a great job as a father. Hey, sister, I think you're doing a great job as a spouse. I'm encouraged by you. Well, if you only knew it. No, we know that. Jesus commends a woman's act of service. And he didn't say, she's done all she could. She's my child. I know she's full of sin. Guys, you know that her gifts are limited. None of that. He just commended his daughter. She's done all she could. In fact, there's going to be a memorial to her. That's what God is like. It's as if we're going to show up to heaven one day and go, I almost can't even look at you because I don't deserve to be here. And he lifts up your head and wipes your tear and reminds you that in his son you are perfectly righteous. That's what our God is like. He's not just a defender, he's a commender. So some of you need to be encouraged by that this morning. Keep serving Jesus. And don't think that Jesus, God the Father, stands and looks over his own children and is always frowning at them. No, no, that was your grandpa. No, no. (laughs) That's not our God. Our God loves his children. Over and over again, the the Scriptures teach that we can please God. Believe that, friend. 
believe that child of God, you can be pleasing to your God. And the sin that you bring to the table, dealt with, done. We're not, we're not going to talk about it anymore. Done. As far as the east is from the west, done. Depths of the sea, done. We can be pleasing to our, to our God. He prepares good works so that we can walk in them. It doesn't say he prepares good works and we're never going to do it right. Ephesians 2.10. It's not what Ephesians 2.10 says. We can walk in them. So hear Jesus as defender and commender. Be encouraged. You can please our Lord with your loving service to him. He's forgiven your sin and enabled you to do good works. I'll just end with this. What a Savior. What a Savior. Let's pray. God and Father, you are such a good God. Thank you for showing us more of your character as we see it in Jesus Christ. Father, if there are those here that are opposing you, whether it's publicly or secretly, I'm praying that you, Holy Spirit, would convict them of sin, convict them of the fact that they don't win. Correct them. Bring them home, if you will, to their Creator, their Redeemer. Do that today, Lord. Give them the joy of salvation as they throw open their mouths in confession. Father, for those that serve in your name and who might not do it as much as they want or as well as they wish they could or with more, I pray that as their heart is truly in love with you, you would encourage them with your commendation. Encourage them in their service and spur, their, spur them on some more. Father, comfort them with your fatherly loving care. Lord, we pray for those who may be secretly holding on to sin, involved in sin. And one day, if it all comes out, it will cast a dark shadow on your reputation. One day, if it all comes out, it will cast them to judgment. I pray that you would grab their hearts and turn those hearts around. Again, remind them of your forgiving nature. Remind them of the fact that they haven't died yet. There is opportunity to repent and to go to the forgiver. Father, there are a lot of other prayers to pray, a lot of other things going on in hearts. I don't know them all, but you, Holy Spirit, do minister the word to our hearts. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.